today, Christians all around the world are celebrating this particular day. We call it Palm Sunday, and it's the annual reminder of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom of God. And he entered that city riding on a colt, a foal of a donkey, to the shouts of Hosanna, which is a term of praise to God. As people waved palm branches, they laid their cloaks on the road, and then they laid those same kinds of branches on the road before him, and the whole city was astir. Excitement crackled in the air. The people were expecting Jesus to claim the kingship and then defeat the Romans and set them free. When he entered Jerusalem in the manner he did, riding on a donkey to the shouts of praise, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, but he did so purposefully. It was a deliberate act on his part, an overt claim to be the rightful king of Israel. And he continued his journey going up to the temple and entering, entering it, which was exactly what the coming king was supposed to do. But his first act was not to claim the crown. Rather, it was to cleanse the temple. He drove out all of those who had turned it from a house of prayer for all the nations into a marketplace. And then less than a week later, on Friday, this king hung on a cross. And those crowds that had so loudly proclaimed him had either abandoned him or were there at his trial calling for his execution. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. The Father had not somehow let circumstances get out of control. This was all part of God's plan and purpose. For on that cross, Jesus bore the sins of the whole world so that we who have put our faith in him can enter his kingdom. And there really was no other way. Before the crown... There came the cross. Now, one of the things that we know as followers of Christ is that in this world, things do not stay as they are. God is moving like that day in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. Not overtly like he was on that day, yet quietly behind the scenes, he brings his will to pass. And as he moves, things must change. And in our heart of hearts, I think we understand that. And you know, it's not just believers who should so know that things don't stay as they are. It should be patently obvious to all, if they have any powers of observation, that the people we know and the world we live in are in a constant state of flux. People grow older. They get sick. They die. Some even turn over a new leaf and get in shape for a time, and then their time comes. Governments and world leaders change. Societies evolve or they devolve, becoming either better or worse. South Korea, South Africa, 
Russia. The United States are not the same countries they were 50 years ago. They are not even the same country they were 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Indeed, because of the radical shift of leadership in our country politically, we are not the same as we were four months ago. And similar kinds of seismic shifts are poised to occur all across Europe. In the moral realm, especially, we understand that things do not stand still. Either we are endeavoring to live a good life, or we're degrading, we're becoming less upright. And if we do, we end up accepting more and more behavior that even we would have at one time called inappropriate. And the changes which occur in the hearts and souls of people and make no mistake about it. Those changes are occurring, constantly occurring, and generally they're as slow as a glacier, and yet they are relentless so that the shifts over a lifetime are monumental. Now, I used to tell my children, you are becoming the person you will be. What you do today determines who you will be tomorrow. And that's why Christians are so concerned about the things which swirl around in our minds. We know that thoughts are important and the thoughts that we entertain are, um, are, are critical to who we are and who we're becoming. There's an old saw that acknowledges we can't stop the birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from building a nest in our hair. That's a picturesque way of saying that all kinds of thoughts might go through our minds, but we don't have to let any of them take up residence. And those certain thoughts we entertain, which we allow to take place in our minds, soon begin making their way out in our actions. And more than that, the very thoughts themselves begin to define who we are. Jesus' insight into this matter is revealed in statements like, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. That's pretty strong language, I know, and it seems like a giant step from the thought to the deed, and it is in some ways. But both the hatred and the murder come from the same kind of heart. We are, each one of us, changing. We, we can't remain in a static state. And the things we think greatly impact what we, were, what we are becoming. Now, all of this really is a kind of a long way about to introduce us to our topic today. And I think it applies to this whole passage that we're going to look at. Uh, at least I hope we'll see that. But it, it, it will certainly, I think, help us better understand one particular verse in our text, and it's the one we're going to begin with this morning. You see, Christians from other times um, had a better understanding of this one verse than we do today. We, we, we live here in this nation at this time, uh, one of the most privileged nations which has ever existed. And, and Christians in other places of our world today know this passage in a way that we don't because they're living it. The reverse I'm referring to is found once again as we continue in our study in the book of Romans in ch- uh, chapter 8. And I want to invite you to 
turn there with me to Romans chapter 8. And of course, uh, we'll have the text up on either side of me. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 39 today. And we're going to begin kind of in the middle of this passage with verse 36. And I'm going to tell you before I read it, to our ears, these words are going to sound foreign or maybe overly dramatic. To many believers down through the centuries, and in many places in our world today, they simply describe everyday life. This is what Paul writes in those verses quoting the Old Testament. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and, and what we're reading is the acceptance of the followers of God that this is their lot in this world. Not because they've done something to deserve it, no. It's because they're faithful to Jesus Christ. This is simply the way the world treats the faithful whenever it has the opportunity to do so. I think it's hard for us to understand. We have enjoyed such great freedom in this country. And so I think I need to put our age into its real perspective for you. Uh, because we live in this nation and we've enjoyed such freedom. We, most people anyway, are, are really not aware of what has transpired over the last hundred years. So, you know, this is 2017. And depending how you reckon uh, the change in the century, we're only 16 years or so out of the last century, the 20th century. Most of us have spent most of our life in that century. And in the 20th century, more people have died for the Christian faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Now that is a shock to most people in this country, but it's absolutely true. And this century, the 21st century that we're living in, is on pace to keep that same statistic in place. For the most part, these things haven't touched us. If anything, we have just barely been grazed by them. And yet there can be little doubt when we look at the culture around us that there is a hardening against not, not all religions, though some people do indeed reject them all, but there has been a, a major shift in the sentiment which is away from Judaism and Christianity. And given that things don't say the same and that our thoughts shape who we are and therefore shape our action, none of us can really be surprised that Christians and Jews have become targets of hate even in our own country. And none of us should be surprised if things get worse than they are. We can hope they'll get better. We can work for it by praying and by living out our faith. We can ask God to once again send revival on this land. But one thing we know, things will not remain as they are. They will not remain as they are. They can't. Change is absolutely irresistible. We will either get better or we will get worse. Now, I have to tell you, none of this has uh, been said to depress you. Although I'm sure it is depressing, isn't it? I'm really just simply trying to state a reality. At the very least, 
we know that we're facing a growing opposition to our faith here in this country. And where that will lead, only God knows. So I think we need to be prepared for anything. And the things which Paul writes in the rest of this passage can fortify us for whatever comes our way. You see, he wrote from experience. He lived under the persecution where believers were, they faced death all day long. They were considered to be just so many sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul wasn't in despair. And he begins this section by asking two questions in verse 31. The first question refers back to the things that Paul had just been talking about, the preceding passage, which we have already looked at at another time. And we read in verse 31, What then shall we say in response to these things? That's a rhetorical question. Paul has just told us that God makes everything, even the bad things, work out for our good. And that God's plan is always on track, no matter what we may have to so in that sense, we're almost speechless when we think about it, we can, when we consider all that God has done for us and all that he is going to do. But Paul wasn't quite so overwhelmed by it all that he didn't have more to say. And so he asks his next question in verse 31, which again is rhetorical for the answer is obvious. And this is what we read there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, if God is for us, just who can be against us? Well, all sorts of people can be against us. I mean, we've already acknowledged that. Paul does also, as he said in the verse that we just read. He's going to go turn there in just a little bit. But all sorts of people can, can be against us. But what Paul, is the point he's making is though people may oppose us, it really doesn't. God is on our side and everything else is insignificant. Nothing they do to us can really harm us or have any lasting impact. Uh, he continues to drive the point home in a similar question and statements in verse 33 in the beginning of verse 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, says Paul. Oh, they can bring their charge against us, but God's chosen us. They can condemn us, but it's God who has justified us. The world can array itself against us. It can accuse us and condemn us. They can count us as mere sheep to be slaughtered. They can even kill us. But they're powerless to change our eternity. As Paul tells us elsewhere, we are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. You know, the world is as powerless as a flea trying to stop a, a speeding train of 100 cars by flying head-on into it. But the truth is, they're crushing themselves in the process. See, God is for us. No matter who is against us, God is for us. And in case we don't get that, and so that we understand what our position before God is, that we know it even better. Paul goes on to tell us that there is nothing which can come between us and God. And so he asks another rhetorical question where the answer is obvious. Verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
No one can be against us because God is with us. And no one can come between us and our God. Nothing can separate us from his love. Now, I want you to understand something here. Now, this is not our love for God, which is on display here. This is his love for us that Paul is talking about. You and I might fear, and probably would fear, the trouble and hardship, the persecution and famine, the nakedness and the sword, but not Christ. He endured them already, and he overcame them all. Death no longer has a hold on him. Even when it did, it could not separate us from his love. Even when he could die, he still went to the cross. He died for us because he loves us. Nothing else is even a, a shadow of that. Donald Barnhouse is a famous pastor of a famous church in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian. And he was driving home with his young children from the cemetery after burying their mother. He was trying to think of some words of comfort to, to help soothe their loss. And, and as they were driving a truck past them, it cast its shadow on them in the car. And at that moment, he turned to the kids and he asked them, which would you rather be hit by, the truck or, or the shadow of the truck? And the shadow, of course, they said. And then he said to them, Christ took the hit. All that death can do to us now is cast a shadow over us. See, nothing can come between us and our God. Nothing can separate us from his love. And since God is for us, who can really be against us? Well, that's right, no one really can be against us. But it gets even better because Paul goes on to tell us God will give us everything. So verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So let me tell you what that means. It means that we're going to inherit everything. That's what giving us all things means. There is nothing good which will not be ours, which will not belong to us. You know, years ago, I, I don't know if people still do this, um, but back then, at least for a period of time, there was this clever little gift that people um, would sometimes give, maybe at a wedding shower or maybe when someone was moving into a new home. They, they'd buy a, a laundry basket, right? <laughs> and, and they'd fill that laundry basket full to overflowing with things like laundry detergent and, and uh, softener, maybe some towels and washcloths, other, other cleaning products, and maybe various kitchen wraps. Maybe they put a dish towel or two in it, and there's some hand soap, air fresheners, you know, candles, all kinds of little things which people just starting out or maybe people moving into a new place might need. Yeah, it was a thoughtful gift, and people thanked them for it and sent the little card back, right? But the real appreciation came practically as they would use each of those little things. Well, you know, God's gift to us is like that. It's like a laundry basket full of things. We, we can only do something like that as kind of a representative. But what God does is full and complete. 
complete. There's nothing left out. He gives it all to us. But that's not all there is. You see, this gift isn't strictly for the future. He's already started giving it to us. He's already in the process of giving us all things. There's much more to come yet, yes, but we are already the recipients of so much. God is giving us now um, these things, and yet they're already on their way to us, these good things. It's kind of like if that laundry basket was sending things to the, the person you were going to give it to before you ever presented the gift. Every good and perfect gift you and I have ever known and we have ever enjoyed has come from God. Even now, he's giving us all things. But it's not just things. It's not just things that God gives us. You see, he also gives us himself. In Christ, God gave himself to us. He gave us a spirit, and so he gives himself to us. You know, when we give a gift, not always, I, I know, I, I know it doesn't always work this way, but when we really do give a gift and we, we put our heart into it, we are in a sense, aren't we giving something of ourselves to that person? God does even more than that. He really does give himself to us. Not just things, not just things in the future, but himself to us. And since he's infinite, there's more than enough to go around. And how could we ever doubt any of this? I mean, listen to the words. The Father did not spare his own son. You know what that means? He, he sent him to that cross. He sent him to bear that eternity of pain which we could not bear. He turned his back on his son. He, he hung on that cross, inflicting the greatest sorrow and suffering upon his own son that ever could be turned his back on him so he wouldn't have to turn his back on us. Then he, the Father himself, gave him up for all of us. Do you understand what that means? It means that the Father felt the same pain, the same emptiness, the same suffering as the Son when he hung there on that cross. And he did all of that for us. How could we ever doubt that now that Jesus has been raised from dead and is back with the Father that he will give us everything which is good, the best of which is himself. God is for us. No one can be against us. Nothing can come between us and our God. Nothing can separate us from his love. And in the process, we are inheriting all good things. And I think that's good news. Uh, and we ought to be really encouraged by that. But Paul knows us too well because he knew himself. And so he knows how discouraged we can become when we fail, when we fall into, or frankly, when we walk into sin with our eyes wide shut, as the saying goes, refusing to look at the truth. He knows how devastating that is, how overwhelmed we are by our sense of failure, how defeated we are in our hearts, and, and we wonder just how can we be a Christian and do something like that. And so he reminds us. He points us away from ourselves. He points us away from our sin. He points us to the Savior. He puts our eyes there where they belong. 
verse 34 again, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We have an advocate. He is in the highest court where all the final decisions are made. He's interceding for us, pleading our case, pointing not at our sin, which has overwhelmed us and which sometimes we cannot take our eyes off of, but he points to his cross, to his blood, which paid for it all. You know, hanging out here near our lobby is a framed letter. It's from the bank, which used to hold the mortgage on this building. And it states in that letter that we paid all we owe and that our title is now free and clear. Now, if a collector from that bank should ever show up on our doorstep claiming that we owed them more money, we could walk them over to that letter and let them read for themselves. And that letter says, as it hangs there in that frame, continually it declares, no, we do not owe anything that debt has been paid. And you and I, for all of our sins and failures, have had our debt paid by Christ Jesus himself. And every moment of every day, he is proclaiming we are free and clear. The cross has paid for it all. God is for us. Whatever happens in our world, however bad it might get, God is for us and no one can really be against us. Nothing can come between us and our God and his love for us. In the process, we are inheriting all things. And even our sins and failures are taken care of. Every day and every moment of every day, our advocate is interceding for us. Now, all that matters. And since nothing in this world stays the same, neither do you and I. Once we belong to Christ, nothing can ever take us away from him. But we are either growing in our faith and becoming all which God wants us to be, or we're sliding backwards and on our way to the woodshed for correction. The things that we think the things that take up residence in our minds, they are the things that begin to make a difference in our lives and who we are and what we do. And there are thoughts we need to banish that we need to evict from the premises. But then there are those things that we need to cling to, which we need to encourage to stay and to grow, which, uh, which ought to be a part of who we are. All of the things that we've talked about, the thoughts that we read today, the things that we ought to dwell on. God is for us. He's for us. Who can be against us in any way that it matters? Nothing can come between us and our God. Nothing can separate us from his love. We are in the process of receiving all good things, and even our sins, all of them are paid. When we embrace those truths, we become uber victors. The real champions of the world, the Davids who have slain the Goliaths, not in our own strength, 
but because of God. As verse 37 says, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The truth is this. We who belong to God because of God, that's who we are. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The sad truth is we don't always live it out because because of the things that are in our mind. And I have to tell you something. Paul was like us. He had his ups and downs. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you've seen them. But overall direction of his life was that of victory, of overcoming the world, because he believed. Listen, would you listen to some of the most powerful, beautiful and encouraging words ever written in any language or book as Paul tells us what he believed. What is in reality the truth? Verses 38 and 39 For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My grandmother would read that passage and she would laugh out loud. She would raise her hand and say, Glory, because it is glorious. Paul was convinced. He believed. He kept the truth before his mind, and so he became all that God intended in the bay. He was more than their conqueror. He was an uber-victor. You and I, we need to enter Jesus' triumph in much the same way I think that he entered Jerusalem, knowing who we are and who we belong to. And we know it's not because of the things that we have done or ever can do, but all because God loves us and has done for us all that is needful. We need to claim that victory by filling our minds with the truth as we endeavor to live it out. And maybe before we reach the crowd, we need to cleanse the temple. We need to take a look at our own hearts and souls and see what needs to be dealt with and bring it before the living to know that though there is a crown waiting for us between us and that crown there's a cross we don't know what it will be we don't know how it will come it might be large it might be small it might be heavy or relatively light but no matter what the cross, no matter what the world might do, no matter what we must go through or might go through, because God loves you, you're an overcomer. You're a winner. You are more than a conqueror. God's grace, not in pursuit.
presumption, not in arrogance, and certainly not in fear, but by faith we need to live.